Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 and Big Talker. Um, we got to go back to real estate here. Um, obviously, if you live in Ontario, this is a pressing uh, subject. Uh, I'm joined by Daniel Foch of Foch Family Real Estate. Uh, Daniel, thank you for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me on. So, I mean, you're in the mix. You are a real estate agent. Um, what are we seeing right now in regards to the response to increased rates? Um, and then the side question to that, are we seeing any serious efforts to increase supply? Um, I mean, supply is tough because it's sort of inelastic, right? Like, And if anything, I would say we're probably going to see a decrease in supply as prices come down. I think 45 projects have been canceled in, in the GTA so far this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's as a result of construction costs increasing and then prices of the end units decreasing at the same time, right? So it becomes less and less compelling for developers to want to put supply into the market. Um, and, and so I think that that's probably going to be a continued trend until something changes, right? Because interest rates are just a, another cost to developers, just like construction costs increasing. Construction yeah, cost costs are up. Yeah, exactly. So construction costs are up like 22% year over year. And now interest rates are up, you know, probably, uh, I guess, 200%, you know, if you measure it in percentage points. Um, so on that on that note, in terms of what we're seeing with the existing housing stock, I've seen a lot of people make the claim and be like, oh, well, GTA home prices are down 20%. So obviously there was never an affordability crisis uh obviously we weren't undersupplied is there any merit to that um no i don't think so and i it's it's interesting you know terminology to use because if you just base uh household affordability on the ability for an average household to service a mortgage it's actually less affordable today Mm -hmm. than it was in february you know if you're buying a seven hundred thousand dollar house at 1.5 percent interest rate now you can only buy a $500,000 $500,000 house at a three or 4% interest rate. Right. So, you know, and, and so you're getting less house functionally or less, less borrowing power, buying power um, for the same, um, same market. Right. So, and it's interesting when you talk about prices coming down, you know, prices have come down, I would say uh, 15 to almost 30% on the average and, and about, mm-hmm. you know, 15 to 15 to 22, 25% on the median. Um, and I, I like to use the median. I think it's a little bit of a, a clearer picture. Um, Because there's room for seasonal skew, I would say, in the average, especially in in some of these smaller suburban markets in the GTA. Um, But what happens is, you know, borrowing power has been reduced probably, well, based on the figure that I just used, maybe a maximum of 20%. And prices have come down, you know, if they've come down more than than that, then for for somebody who's sitting there looking at, okay, am I ever going to be able to afford a house? Um, they might be saying, oh, if, if rates keep going up at this rate, I'm not going to be able to afford in in a month, right? Or next time mm-hmm. uh, fi- fixed interest rate increases. So you're starting to see a lot of opportunism on the first-time buyers especially to say, oh, this might be my last shot to get into the market. And it's not so much just a function of price. It's a function of price and borrowing power, right? Um, and so there's a lot of people on the fixed side who sort of trying to still sneak into the market while they can, while they can and even assuming that, they're going to be eating that that equity loss. Like, you know, I think everybody's sort of realized mm-hmm. we're on a da- downward trajectory and you might still see another 10 plus percent of downside in the market, right? And where does where does that type of decline take us? Because I think when when ordinary people who are maybe not following this closely or not actively selling, 
uh, or buying. See a headline like that, they go, whoa, 20%. But my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, my understanding is that brings us back to like February 2021. Yeah, exactly. Um, it would it, actually, it would might, let's say if you were to say 30, if you use a February peak, like February 2022 peak, yeah, it would be probably about a year. If you were to use like probably a, you know, a monthly moving average, which is maybe a cleaner metric, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you, let's say you use Q1, so a three month uh, monthly moving average, then, you know, it, it might bring you back to like 2020 pricing, kind of like right before the run up, let's say mid end of 2020, which is honestly where the market was sort of healthy. Like, a lot of people, it's so funny, right? Because during COVID, like we just forgot that um, the greater Toronto area market, especially sold off by 30 to 40% from 2017 to 2018, right? Like we mm-hmm. saw peak, you know, April, I think it was April of 2017, we saw the non-resident speculation tax come into play and that taxed uh, foreign ownership by 15% and prices dropped from April of 2017 to August of, of 2017. And that that drop was about, 20, 20% on the lowest, I would say in, in York region. Um, and some areas of Peel, like Caledon, I think some of the more luxurious areas, it was really a luxury bubble. That's why the skew on the average was so bad. Um, and, and we saw as high as 40%, I think in, uh, in Aurora, right. In that, that three to four mm-hmm. month period. So it's not like real estate has been, a, uh, up into the right linear trajectory, uh, forever. People were very quick to forget um that and then i think that the market kind of just it took time to get back to the that that stability and it was still sort of trading sideways before covid i was actually really optimistic that we'd almost gone through a healing period and canadians had been sensible about housing and you know we had, had created a stronger maybe more healthy relationship with with the housing real estate asset and then covid happened and interest rates dropped to record lows and quantitative easing put a lot of money into yeah. the bank's hands through bond purchases. And there was a lot, there's too much money in the market. Right. And you see that in, in the U S you see that in stocks, right. GameStop, whatever mm-hmm. it was, people were doing the yellows. <laughs> and, and I think real estate is our, our, our retail trade, right. It's our, it's our get rich quick scheme. So you're saying that GameStop is not going to the moon. Yeah, I'm joking. I'm not qualified though, but I'm we, just saying they're comparative. Yeah, yeah, we joked about that. We joked about that on the show when at the time, and it was just one of those things where you're like, uh, if ever, if ever there was an indicator of like economic insanity about to unfold, it was people people going all in on a on a video game retail uh, outlet and driving it up. Yeah. <laughs> That, that actually, to me, indicates a very real problem with the economy post-COVID, which is that, you know, uh, a lot of this monetary policy exacerbated the disparity mm-hmm. between the lower and, and upper middle class, right? And so people who feel like th- their upward mobility has been erased or it's been more challenging, they, they feel compelled to take these massively high-risk positions because that's the only way to get from that lower middle class to the upper middle class. And this, yep. this K-shaped recovery is really starting to become apparent as we start talking about things like inflation, recession, et cetera. Well, yeah, that's a very good point. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people forgot throughout COVID is that for, let's say, wealthier Canadians, I mean, the same goes for Americans, their savings went up. Um, in large part, their whatever equities they held massively inflated, so their wealth their wealth went up. Um, for working class people, uh, people in the lower socioeconomic categories, they were the ones facing job loss and all of those things. Um, so I think you raise a very good 
uh, nuanced point there that that may be part of the contributing factor to some of the craziness where people are, it, it, you essentially become uh, a roulette uh, player and you're like, okay, I'm going to pick a spot and just bet the house uh, and see what happens. Yeah, and in, in Canada, that, that caused people to make more speculative bets on housing, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and the challenge, I think, with housing especially is, you know, you, you're not get, you can't go log into Robinhood in the States and get, uh, you know, 10 or 20x leverage like you can buying a house. And you're not going to get it insured by the government at any time, right? Yeah, you can get a small amount of margin, but you're not going to get 20x leverage, right? And people no. buying with 95% loan to value. Like a lot of the cases where you talk about this exuberance, right, that the Bank of Canada has described, I would say that's that's more your inexperienced investors who are thinking, oh, of FOMO, or this is an opportunity mm-hmm. for me to ha- to see that life changing money for me and my family, and they rushed into the trade. The trade got crowded, and we saw this this massive run up. And we know what happened. We have we have co- like comparables many times throughout Canadian history and and in, in the U.S. and any other you know asset inflations that what happens after that that big run up right and, yeah. and we saw it in 2017 here and we saw it in the in 89 here and we saw mm-hmm. it in, in uh i guess it was 81 as well so i guess yeah. we'll see how this one ends yeah yeah that's a very good point i want to pick your brain on another subject because um there's certainly a monetary policy side to this but there's also a supply side to this in terms of homes per capita i know that canada is particularly poor um, compared to the G7, Ontario is the worst among the provinces. Um, how, I mean, I know that, so you're in the selling business, um, not necessarily the, the building business, but how much do you think that nimbyism and this, this real anti-development, um, not in my backyard sentiment has driven some of the problem we're seeing in regards to affordability? Um, it's tough to say. I mean, I think that it, it plays a role just in, it, it creates waste, right? Like it's not so much that it's actually materially impacting the supply chain. I don't think, I think people want to allude to that, but it does makes projects more wasteful, right? Like every mm-hmm. month that goes by where you have to reconfigure your site plan or architecture, that means you have to pay an architect, you have to pay capital costs. You know, there's, there's all of these new costs and ultimately those costs all end up getting recapitalized into the consumer who ends up buying the end unit or leasing the end unit. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not like the developers just like, Oh, I'm going to take a loss on this one boys. Right. They, you know, they, 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 yeah. So it's cost push inflation. Right. And that's an inflationary force, no matter what way you slice it. I would say that, you know, housing is probably one of the few areas economically where, you know, that that concept of trickle down economics um, actually could exist. Right. So I think Mm -hmm. that no matter what housing we can get built at this point, if you can do it, it's important. And you're starting to see that even in, you know, the amount of the, you know, in, in Canada, we sort of have this this very disparate housing model where you know, I think census uh, data just came out indicating that the fastest growing house, household size, size in Canada is one, right? Um, and the second is uh, five plus, right? And they don't have anything after that. And so there's this gap where your traditional family used to exist where the you're starting to see basically, yeah, and yeah. you're starting to see this almost DIY density where people are buying actually like these four bedroom homes and builders are building them this way too individual circuits, uh, multiple individual circuits in bedrooms. Every bedroom has a bathroom, right? Bedrooms are massive in these houses. You're getting three, four bedroom houses with four car parking and they're being turned into rooming houses for not even just rooming houses, like a, as a, as a density concept concept or a rental, but they're being converted to 
multifamily, multi-generational yeah. households. And to me, this this alludes to us ending up with almost like a German housing model, right? Where you're or a, or a Swiss housing model, where you get a lot of rental ownership, or sorry, a lot of rental tenure in the urban areas, and then in suburban areas, you're starting to see housing become this multi-generational asset that's passed down through generation. And ultimately you end up with a low ownership housing model where more and more rental assets are owned by institutions. Right. Yeah. Anecdotally, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm in Oakville. Um, I'm seeing some of that. I mean, where I am, you're looking at one, uh, or sorry, two bedroom, 900 square feet units. I mean, some of these units, uh, like you're looking at three generations, five, six people, it can get pretty tight, and that may always makes me scratch my head when I talk to city councilors who are like, well, they're not building units big enough these days. And it's like, well, there's nothing in the middle anymore um, like, because of the waste you alluded to and all of the, the headaches and redo the traffic studies and planing and all of the – we worry about the shading of a building and all of that jazz. Um, so it just all piles on. Um, we have about two minutes here before we got to go to break. What do you think are some big policy initiatives that should be done in the housing sector, whether that be local, provincial, federal? I think the I think the municipal governments probably excluding them from the equation is going to be the best. And I think the you know the provincial government has already made some steps in that direction, right? So they're they're making an effort to basically like you know the, take the keys away from the municipalities on the planning side. And from my perspective, that's that's going to like. If you, I don't know what that they're capable of doing a better job, but I don't think that anybody's capable of doing a worse job than municipalities right now. To be honest with you, and I mean, and I say that with the utmost respect. It's just like they're overwhelmed. There are too many applications for a small government to be processing, and we need to get some economies of scale injected there. So that probably is the big yeah. one. And then I think if we relieve that planning uh, bottleneck, then we move into a construction bottleneck. We're already building at capacity. So we have to solve that problem too. Yeah, that's a, that's another factor in the equation is all of the inputs. Um, how do we increase supply? Well, you also then have to, you I, like we talk about zoning, zoning reform, but then you also have to have a serious conversation about the inputs that make zoning reform uh, a solution. And, and there's a long list of things that need to be done there. Um, to to alleviate that. I mean, it's always funny, the conversations with local um, planners. I know the city of Toronto just released a report saying they're having trouble hiring people in the planning department because they can't afford to actually live in Toronto. And so it's just coming full, where it's like a feedback loop of houses, houses get more expensive, the stock is limited, decreased supply, um, it's harder to hire, and then public services suffer as a result. But uh, it has been fantastic to have have you on the program. I uh, hope to have you back soon, and we really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for the opportunity. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America, both on Saga 960 AM and on Big Talker. So we're very delighted for our next guest, uh, someone that I've wanted to have on for a while. bit too nervous to ask, but now we've got something to promote. Ain't that wonderful? We're talking to Noah Rothman, associate editor of Commentary Magazine and the author of the brand new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. David, this is exactly all the topics that we cover each and every week, so it's a pleasure to have Noah on. Noah, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So we're going to get into the book here. We took some notes. Uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, there's a lot of different things that you mentioned. 
Uh, but I wanted to get your reaction quickly to your recent television appearance. I know that uh, you've written this book. It's very thoughtful. You have a very interesting thesis discussing Puritanism, the origins, how it applies today. And uh, you brought this over to uh, MSNBC, where I know you're a, uh, obviously a commentator. And um, they didn't really seem to engage with the ideas too much. And uh, the narrative that came out is the real Puritans are those on the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think your your thesis is, is uh, beautiful in that it does not really touch on politics. But really, what what is your kind of response to that? Because I think that was uh, that that seemed a bit uh, far charged in those first few minutes when you're trying to promote your book. I don't know. Um, well, first of all, I'm I'm very grateful to everybody at MSNBC where I work, and I'm friends with everybody over there. And then Joe blurbed my book. Very gracious of him. So um, yeah, I think there was a little bit of pushback there, but it's important to have some of that pushback. Um, in part because this is this narrative is going to be resisted. When you think of somebody who's who's a priggish and prudish, and who sees in, in innocent cultural products uh, the engine of society's destruction and your corruption, you think of the right, because that was conventionally where this sort of disposition was. And for most of our adult lives, the contrast was struck by left liberals who emphasized self fulfillment, self gratification, even hedonism. Um, and that was the dynamic that we grew up with. And this began to change very rapidly over the course of the last decade. We are treated now to moral crusades engineered by the left, entertainment companies that pledge to impose, you know, plotting didactic narratives over um, entertainment products. So they serve a higher social purpose, sports programs that uh, digress and labor over the uh, lamentable state of racial dynamics in America. Um, the food you eat has to be accompanied with understanding about cultural uh, affinities and perhaps your cultural uh, uh, appropriative, uh, you know, fusion dish uh, should it be, you know, have some didactic moral with it and a lesson about what the cultures and what have you. So it's, it's not like you can enjoy anything anymore. You have to be taught and about why the thing that you're enjoying is probably kind of terrible and has very terrible origins and is rooted in all the sins of America's birth. Um, this is a moral crusade and it's a familiar one. It, it, it's it, as progressives identify less with uh, li liberalism and more with progressivism, they've adopted its habits of mind among them, the hatred of idleness. Uh, the idleness is an idle vessel can be filled with the devil's influence. It is wicked. So you must, you and all your activities must be dedicated to the pursuit of the development of the ideal society. This is a social organizing philosophy and it's accompanied by great displays of discomfort and anguish and pain to communicate your zeal and commitment to the cause. So when the left is confronted with this, yeah, they're gonna reject it because they're gonna say, look, it's the, it's the right that's waging culture wars. And they are. The problem is that that's not new. If I was writing a book about the old Puritans, that's what I would have written. There would have been a searing insight in 1988 to say, well, Republicans are cultural revanchists. They are. And yet now liberals are too. That's a new story. And frankly, it's a much more interesting story. It's the one I'm telling. Yeah. And I love the, the part here. Um, for the new Puritan, ruining your diversion is the whole point. Unnecessary recreations are a luxury you do not deserve. And, and you kind of talk about this at various points in the book. Uh, discussing that, you know, the real focus, what's really important is, quote, agitating for the left wing political goals. So it's in a way to where we have this private sphere where we have sports, we have culinary, you know, figures, we have fashion, we have this entire world that's not 
infected with the politics of uh, your job or perhaps my job. Uh, but now all of that is crossed over and there is no, you know, there is no such thing as the private sphere anymore. It's kind of been infected with this new puritanism, as you label it. Yeah, there certainly shouldn't be politics in these ventures. And the problem is there are. So the origins of this book is that I'm, I was miserable in 2020, late 2020, just like all of you, we were all miserable. Um, depths of the pandemic, months out from the riots, the whole of society dedicated to a redefinition of what America was, is, and should be. And so I'm sitting around with my wife and I'm saying, well, uh, covering politics is just a chore. It used to be fun. I used to enjoy this. Now it's just miserable. And she said, what do you want to do? Well, if I had my druthers, I talk to people in industries I enjoy. I talk to working comics and chefs and uh, sports broadcasters and entertainers and playwrights. But I know I can't do that either because everything is infected with politics. There's no getting away from it. I'm just des destined to be miserable. She goes, that's the book. And it was the book. This book is not about law, not about politics, properly understood government. It's not about education. It's not about the workplace, unless your workplace is uh, where you produce cultural products. This is about aspects of society that are supposed to exist a priori politics, outside of politics. Uh, and they have become politicized by virtue of this rediscovery of a new, of an old moral value that is being repossessed uh, and, uh, and espoused by progressives and uh, left liberals. And, but this is a value system that has a lot to say for it. I organize the chapters in this book by unimpeachable virtues, piety, prudence, austerity, temperance, a fear of God and order. These are things that are otherwise valuable uh, for a society that is dedicated to its own self-preservation. It's just unnatural to see it being advanced by the left. And it is not the values themselves, but the means and methods by which they are enforced and imposed on you in the most zealous of fashions that ultimately detract from their cause and make your life miserable. So my one follow-up question here is, in many instances, we've talked about horseshoe theory, that the fringes on the left and the right are closer together than our politics would seem. And for a long time, on the issues that you're talking about, I mean, I go back to the Dixie Chicks um, and them being scolded for ridiculing George Bush back in the day. You raise a very good point that this type of moral um, purity was very much a Republican um, staple, and now it's both. Do you see this as like another affirmation in regards to that horseshoe theory that on these fringes of moral crusaders, both rep uh, left and right, progressive and conservative, um, that they are they end up actually being closer to each other um, than we otherwise would think? Most certainly. And the amount, the purchase that the fringes get now, I think, is an, is an outgrowth of this phenomenon because we have reconceptualized the fringes who dominate the dialogue. We have reconceptualized politics as something that it's not. It's not legislative affairs anymore. It's not electoral outcomes anymore. It is things with political themes, but exist outside the realm of legislation. They cannot be resolved in state legislatures or in Congress. So we establish for ourselves a set of conditions that cannot be met. That we have these uh, systematic, uh, system-wide phenomena that are uh, unacceptable, that are unjust, that cannot be remedied by government, and that are consuming you. So you work yourself up into this froth where you end up in one of two psychological places. One, very depressed. 
and despondent and you withdraw from politics because the conditions are such that are so immiserating and they're so unresponsive to politics that it's just a chore to even dwell on them and you disengage. The other psychological phenomenon is you radicalize. You resolve to attack the foundations of these wholly immoral and unjust institutions that cannot respond with the urgency and alacrity to what you regard as an absolute moral imperative. So what we're left with are the fringes in, in the dialogue. Everybody else is withdrawn. And you know, you've seen a lot of these, you know, um, op-eds about people who are like, I'm so exhausted. I'm just exhausted by the conditions that be, you know, have beset me in the, in the country. Not too exhausted to write an op-ed in a major city newspaper, but exhausted enough to complain about it. But they are speaking for millions of people who genuinely have dropped out of the process. The problem is the people that are left are the most radical, the most zealous, the most uncompromising. And those are the people who define our political dialogue today. Um, that's in a natural condition, but it's one that's been brought about by this misconception of what politics is and what politics can achieve. Yeah, they got to do the work. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, I wanted to read one passage here, uh, very pertinent to what we do day in and day out. And uh, by the way, Noah, a huge uh, fan of your writing. I think you and uh, Kevin Williamson are, I think you're two of the most talented writers on the right. So uh, definitely, yes, uh, love that. And uh, listen to the podcast as well, Commentary Podcast. We'll, uh, we'll give that another promo here. Uh, so here's the quote, moral crusades do not end in victory. They rarely end at all. Devilry can never be vanquished. Its influence merely transmutes into unfamiliar forms, whereupon the battle against evil begins anew. And so it was that the organs dedicated to stigmatizing the combustion of tobacco products turned their attention to a device that contains no tobacco and involves no combustion, specifically the practice of vaping. And their moralizing forebearers, the campaign's objectives relating to public health, are at best a secondary consideration. So you've probably seen on Twitter, Noah, the vape fam, vape nation is uh, paying attention to your book. They love it. Uh, they understand exactly what you're talking about. They're fighting this battle each and every day. Uh, why is it that the new Puritans have uh, sort of changed their focus to try to vanquish vaping from our public consciousness? What's that all about? Well, there's two two aspects to this. <clears throat> the first is sort of mission creep in institutions. And a, uh, I wrote a piece for commentary on this, which is informs that uh, bit of the chapter that you were reading from, um, that there really was a, a, a genuine, not, you know, not a, a, a conspiracy of the sort that you would see in, uh, in the Oliver Stone movie, but a conspiracy of, of shared interests among pharmaceutical manufacturers who own the patents on every nat, uh, uh, nicotine replacement therapy and the anti-smoking industry um, uh, and the government to stigmatize and to anathematize and ultimately uh, get rid of this, what is a, a smoking sensation tool, albeit unrecognized, um, in part because it was just not controlled by the right people. Now, that is one aspect. The other aspect is this moral crusade, um, which uh, the a Surgeon General's report in 2000 ultimately identified uh, the uh, effort to stigmatize smoking uh, as being a moral crusade and actually becoming an impediment to getting people to uh, drop the habit because of America's latent hostility and antipathy towards moral crusades. This is, again, a sort of an invention of the baby boomer generation, the sexual revolution, when they assumed that the commanding heights that they had seized, this uh, center-left-leaning philosophy, that they, ha they had evolved beyond moral crusades. They had evolved beyond moral panics. We have not. Um, this campaign against uh, vaping, which is very sci dubiously scientifically justified, 
has elements of a moral crusade and a moral panic that are impossible to ignore. One of the biggest examples of this has struck out of me in a, in a line that connects it directly to 19th century uh, moralism and Puritanism of the 17th, uh, 1700, late, early, early 1700s, late 1600s, is um, this one uh, study that identified uh, late onset degeneracy in adults who vape as children. Uh, that you will grow up to be a, a layabout, a, a, a burden on your society uh, if you were to indulge in this habit. And states have gone about criminalizing this conduct in ways that uh, are incredibly excessive, that produce police violence in an unnecessary degree, that, lay, that saddle children with misdemeanor convictions or felony convictions so that they don't create, so that they don't uh, offend worse later on in life. I mean, this is a collective mania. It is a moral panic. And it's not, it's not all that dissimilar from what the Puritans experienced. Puritans were very hostile to smoking for the most part um, and for practical reasons, because the mishandling of fire is something that you didn't want to uh, encourage in the colonial period, but also for moral purposes. This was an act of idleness. And idleness, just like any gaming implement like dice or cards, uh, tobacco was something that corrupted you, not just your humors, but your, your soul, your person. Um, and we see this in how we talk about vaping today among the activist class. And I, I found these parallels so difficult to ignore that I could not fail but to include them in that chapter. One of the, the case studies or examples that is mentioned uh, is a clothing store in uh, a place very dear to my heart in Canada, uh, in Toronto. Um, essentially an instance of, uh, in, in summary, of uh, an accusation of cultural appropriation because uh, certain people whom were not um, one race were making a food or, or providing a food of another race. Uh, my own viewpoint on all of this craziness is, I mean, that is kind of the, the beauty of a multicultural society. You have an Indian family own a pizza place and all of these things. Um, where do you think some of the insanity around cultural appropriation and food um, comes from? And why, why do we see this as such a failure and not a success of that melting pot of different people living peacefully together? Sorry, I was muted. Uh, some, some of this, I think, is informed uh, by a general uh, impulse towards cultural competency, uh, which is not a bad thing. Uh, the general instinct toward inclusivity and sensitivity informs the sentiments around this. The language and the activism around it is informed more by a desire to prosecute professional jealousies and to establish borders and boundaries for your society that are inviolable and that create and sustain order. Um, and in the manifestation in which you talked about it, it has just resulted in the, out, the outcome, the, the final, final product, was to deprive you of something nice. It, it was to sell, you know, you can't now sell, shop for athleisure wear and the store permission that I was citing there uh, and have fa and bone broth because that's somehow in a zero-sum game mentality detracting from Asian cultures. A, uh, a Portland food truck that sold uh, Mexican food from, uh, from Mexico, where these where two women had traveled and, and learned and 
got brought the recipes back and were very good and were and were uh, feted in the local press for their acumen making this food was destroyed because it was perceived to be stealing physically stealing and, and and theoretically stealing in a sort of metaphorical sense from the cultures they were uh actively promoting in a very uh good way um the restaurant uh in chicago fat rice which was the best restaurant in chicago according to chicago magazine in 2015 was destroyed by its own employees or at least its uh, former employees not because the chef was a particular prima donna, which he apparently was, that's uh, described as industry standard behavior. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, but because it had, quote, you know, uh, taken from uh, black culture. Now, I'm not sure how black culture uh, has anything to do with the city of Macau, which is situated on the Pearl River Delta in China, but it was perceived to be that way uh, during 2020 at the height of this mania. And that destroyed this restaurant. People, a host of big host, um, is being deprived of something they like by a much smaller host. Uh, and it's, it's perceived to be out of a, a value system that has something to say for it. And I do my best to be charitable in the book, uh, but it is also manifesting in ways that are entirely unproductive and are uh, sowing the seeds of its own destruction because a backlash is brewing. So again, we're speaking with Noah Rothman, author of the book, The Rise of the New Puritans. Uh, and there's one quote I absolutely love, and I, I've actually, I've had these saved. It's uh, Noam Chomsky on sports, uh, when he talks about jingoism, <laughs> irrational jingoism. And I remember he did some uh, radio interview where he talked about listening to sports radio for 15 minutes, which I cannot even imagine him doing that. But listening to these guys calling in with the most arcane stats and all of this about the batting average and all that, and he goes, yeah, this is all just jingoism. It's his own thing. <laughs> and uh, the, the point I, I wanted to bring up here is that, you know, the again, the thesis is, is very powerful. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people would just be drawn to controversies of the book or they're going to tie it to the current political narrative. But there's a lot of very, very important lessons uh, about looking at the old Puritans and how this kind of American flavor or North American flavor of liberalism actually helped, you know, keep that in check. Um, and a lot of your book covers the uh, narrative of, quote, you know, the liberals, the left eating their own. Uh, what do you think of this sort of uh, left liberals who reject the premise of, of the new Puritans? You know, do you see that there's some force there? Do you think these are the people that perhaps those of us who might be libertarian or, you know, consumer advocates on the right uh, might want to perhaps partner with them? Is there is there any hope there? Yeah, there is. I, I would think so. Um, at least when it comes to cultural issues, you know, conventional politics, as we understand it, law, economics, foreign affairs, that's outside the scope of this book. Um, this is about the stuff that should exist outside politics, and therefore there should be broad apolitical coalitions around it. I wouldn't be surprised by that because nine of the 10 people I spoke with are Democrats, identify as liberal, wouldn't vote for a Republican if you put a gun to their head, but also resent the phenomena that are sapping them of enthusiasm for their life's work. Um, in the sports arena, there's just the parallels between that and late 16th century Puritanism are just impossible to ignore. Puritan society had a real problem with anything that was physical but didn't have a martial dimension to it. So like archery or shooting. Um, or even you know marathon running that sort of thing, but when it comes to uh, football, I mean what we would sort of see as a proto genesis of football, it's not exactly the same thing, but it, it has enough similarities that you can recognize it. Was anathematized and basically 
um, outlawed in the colonies and in during uh, the uh, late 1500s, early 1600s in uh, in England, um, because it had so many odious features that nobody could ignore. It was violent. It was bloody. Um, the Puritans uh, outlawed blood sports and sports involving animals. It was jingoistic, as you say, encouraged reckless consumerism, friv frivolous consumerism and overspending. It encouraged dressing up in costume, which was odiously similar to performance art, which was utterly banned. Um, and that's the sort of thing you see in modern critiques of sports culture from the puritanical left. The sports distract from more important activities like your studies. Sports encourage violence and toxic masculinity and violence against women. Puritans were very attuned to violence against women and, and punished it accordingly and um, had no had no uh, had no brook for that. Uh, and similarly, as you said with Chomsky, you know, and I quote him and I quote some others who say, well, ultimately, this is just a, a distraction from the great work of our time, which is organizing for progressive change. All oars must row in this direction. This is the great project of our time, the creation of the ideal state and the ideal society. And anything that distracts from that is worse than worthless. It's it's evil. Do you, do you feel that in some sense, this is just an aversion to the affluence of the time in which we live in now? Like the, the way in which I hear you describe some of this, I mean, sports in North America, um, I'm a huge, Blue Jays fan, Toronto Maple Leafs fan, football fan. I mean, all of that is enjoyed because we have a re relatively comfortable quality of life. We have more time for fun. Do you, what, what part of that aversion for affluence or the, the desire for us to regress or, or the degrowth movement as we see it, do you see that intertwined into some of the critiques on, on fun? And all of the things we enjoy with our our spare time. Yeah, uh, most certainly, um, we do create a lot of our own controversies. Uh, we uh, we invent crises in order to mobilize around a response to those invented crises. Um, a lot of this is uh, a problem of idleness, and um, it's it's a problem that will unfortunately not be around forever because there will there are and will be legitimate crises. Um, but yeah, we do create a lot of our own social phenomena that we uh, rebel against, and this book is full of them. But there's also, you know, the problem of progress itself. Uh, going back to the food uh, chapter, there is a, a strain of, uh, particularly on the, the socialist left, uh, that re rejects modernity entirely. Uh, and that manifests in their frustration with the phenomenon of the, the miraculous phenomenon of the modern food system uh, that feeds the planet and sustains the ever-growing population in ways that critiques of population growth could never have imagined. They just simply did not foresee or would not foresee technological innovation that allows for an ever-increasing population. They, there's a Times piece that I quote there that discusses the way in which we treat food as a commodity and the way in which we, uh, we the modern food system has allowed uh, for uh, people who can't afford food to go hungry. And this is this horrific system that we're taking too much and we're sacrificing, and we're making other people sacrifice. Uh, it's greedy, it's imperialist, and it's, um, it's immoral. It would be immoral and an atrocity if we, the, the modern food system was forcing people into starvation. It's the precise opposite. 
since 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the development of the first global economy since 1914, uh, more than um, almost a billion people were uh, uh, lifted out of the depths of extreme poverty, uh, defined as about uh, living on a dollar and a quarter a day. Um, they it, and uh, malnutrition worldwide has declined from uh, about 10 percent. I think it's 19 to 10 percent, 11 percent, and this is attributable to uh, modern uh, economics, uh, the the global trade system, and of course the triumph of capitalism as the primary theory of economic organization. Uh, quality of life has risen across the board, with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, where attitudes towards uh, genetically modified crops uh, based on a, a campaign, an information campaign designed to stigmatize and anathemize genetically modified crops has been very successful. They have not taken there. And as a result, malnutrition still remains frustratingly high uh, in part because of this designed effort, uh, quote, late empire and hedonism uh, in this one piece about America's uh, love of food uh, to convince everybody to forego progress, to forego technology and to sacrifice and suffer as, as befits a person who, is properly who properly understands the miserable conditions in which we live. You cannot escape these miserable conditions. Otherwise, you're not a well-educated person. You're probably not a moral person. You have to dwell on the world's horrors at all times and in all things and is making for misery. And it is a prescription for misery. Uh, that's not really a sustainable thing unless it's imposed on you by the public square, and it is. But you have to suffer this burden yourself. You have to put this burden on it. Your instinct, your instinct is to slough it off. And I think that instinct is going to win out eventually. But for now, the admonishment and the shame imposed on you in the public square is sufficient to get you to close your mouth. Uh, my, my hope with this book is to give you permission to open it. I love it. It's been opened, uh, definitely. Uh, Noah, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on is because all of these topics that you mentioned are, are things that David and I as consumer advocates, you know, we're kind of pushing against every single day. You bring up the examples of gene editing. You know, it's something that the UK has finally liberalized, obviously off limits in the European Union, uh, everything related to vaping, trying to defend that. There's all kinds of taxes that are imposed on things like sugar. There's all kinds of bans on, you know, different plastics that people use, and it's all ingested into sports and comedy and all these different things. You know, knowing how the last movement of Puritans ended, you know, whether it be through constitutional structures, through some type of competition or people finally were able to get rich, you know, what, what kind of advice can you give to those of us who are battling against this, uh, you know, either politically or socially, uh, knowing the lessons of, of sort of the downfall of the, the last Puritans, you know, do, do we have a hope in rising up against the new ones? I mean, my prescriptions are um, individual to live a joyful life, uh, to have permission to mock these people who are behaving in ways that are utterly hilarious. Um, you know, we're, the only thing that stops you from laughing at this behavior is fear. And that fear is illusory. Um, but also, I have hope for just environmental conditions will have the effect that they had centuries ago. So when, when we think of the stereotypical Puritan, scholars of Puritanism hate this. Um, you think of a, a probably more something aligned with Victorian ethos, uh, the mid 19th century, um, a mainline Protestantism that informed early progressivism. The Puritans themselves get a really bad rap. They weren't nearly as puritanical as our uh, stereotypes would maintain, but the progressives of the 19th century most certainly were. Uh, and one of the downfalls of that uh, theory of social organization is, is um, il illustrated in the phrase banned in Boston. 
So Boston, the heart of mainline Protestantism, the heart of progressivism in this country, uh, waged several moral crusades against um, impious and impure literature, uh, most notably organizing around the Comstock laws and which were and the moral societies that were um, founded to combat Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, for example, this really subversive piece of literature. And so this was very successful in Boston well into the 20th century. Plays were banned, books were banned, songs were not played on the radio, uh, you know, uh, play, uh, you know uh, entertainment was bodlerized. And uh, this was an effective way of communicating to the public that they should stay away from this sort of titillating literary experience uh, for a time. But then eventually there was a backlash that grew against it. And ultimately, as scholars contend, um, Band in Boston went from being a warning against impure literature to a powerful advertisement for it. Publishers actively had tried to get their books banned in Boston to increase sales around the country. And I think the modern equivalent there is banned on Facebook or banned on Amazon. Anytime you have a conservative book, and they are, and they are mostly conservative books that find their way off um, online realtors or uh, aren't able to be advertised on Facebook for this or the other uh, really kind of fatuous concern about the influence they could have on society, on you that we don't really trust. Those sales explode in ways that the PR campaigns and the publishing investment around them don't justify. It is the controversy around that, uh, the scandals when they happen that uh, advertise these materials and undermine the goal of, uh, of these censorious 20-somethings in, in Silicon Valley who think that they know better what you can and cannot consume. Uh, so there are environmental conditions that will also uh, erode the strength of this movement uh, towards depriving you of things you would otherwise enjoy if you had the free will to enjoy them. No, that's it. And you heard that, folks. If uh, you're offended by all the things in this book, which I know I am, you know, you should write to as many people as possible. It should be canceled. The book is The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives War on Fun by Noah Rothman. Noah, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.